Hello, and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast episode. We are going to be talking about bilingual multicultural assessment, and we're also going to be talking about looking at this assessment through a strengths-based lens, as well as other pieces that need to be included in the assessment with the fabulous Dr. Lamitra Baez. All right, everyone. So if you are joining us for live CEUs, just as a friendly reminder at the conclusion of today's course, please log into your speechtherapypd.com account and complete all modules, especially the module entitled quiz to get your live CE credit for today. All right, everyone. I am so excited to introduce you all to Dr. Lamitra Baez. She is a full-time faculty member for the Communication Sciences and Disorders Program at Loma Linda University. Her background as a speech and language pathologist spans over 19 years. She has skillfully held a variety of positions working with children from infancy through adolescence with various speech and language disorders. Her professional interests include language development, differential diagnosis, and cultural diversity. She lectures on language disorders and issues relevant to service providers who serve culturally and linguistically diverse populations. To obtain her PhD in educational psychology, Dr. Baez wrote her dissertation on the relationship between culturally competent teaching and special education. In just the little bit that I have spent with Dr. Baez, I have learned so much, and I'm so excited that we all get to spend this next hour with her. So before we do that, I am going to go ahead and share our financial and non-financial disclosures. I am Caitlin Lopez, the host of the podcast, This Speech Life, and I do receive compensation for this podcast episode. Dr. Baez receives an honorarium for appearing on this podcast episode, and neither of us have non-financial disclosures to report. All right, now we can go ahead and jump into the good stuff. Dr. Baez, thank you so much for joining us here today. All right. So what are three things that we as SLPs need to know about multicultural and bilingual assessments? I mean, I think the first thing that you want to do is make sure you have your pre-assessment task completed. So the interview with the parents is super important. That's where a lot of that strength-based approach comes from, is finding out what's important to the parents and what the parents see is missing or is the concern for the student. So that's super important. Observations is important. Looking at, you know, the students and seeing how they are interacting with their peers, what kind of communicative intents they're using is really important. And, you know, just how they're interacting in the classroom and, and as compared to their, you know, culturally and linguistically similar peers. So all of that is really important before you even start. And then you really want to make sure that you know how to conduct a dynamic assessment. So kind of getting started with preparing yourself for what am I going to do to look deeper into some of these things that appear to be possible areas for concern and how am I going to find out if they're actually, you know, real concern. And then I think third, one of the most important things is knowing your the common linguistic systems or dialects that are typical for that community, what tests are appropriate for that community and which ones are not. And so having a linguistic and cultural inventory prepared and kind of looking at that and having that before you start the assessment. I would I know I don't know if that seemed like more than three. <laughs> I kind of 
lumped everything together, but that's where I would start. Okay, awesome. Yeah, no, that I think that covers about three big chunks. I'm going to ask you a couple questions to kind of get a little bit more in depth with those first three things. So you mentioned some pre-assessment tasks that need to be finished. Would you include the observations of the student within the classroom and within, you know, interactions of peers within that and then the parent interview? Is there anything else that we need to be doing ahead of time? Or are those kind of the two big main tasks? Those are the two main ones, but I would also speak with teachers. Okay. You know what I mean? A lot of times teachers, especially when you're working in that community, the teachers have the experience. They know who's, you know, compared to who, what, what seems typical and what seems outside of the norm. Because that's really what we're looking at, right? Those kids that just aren't picking up the language like their peers, even if they have, have other languages that are spoken at home. The teachers tend to have a very good concept, grasp of what is outside the norm. So t- I would say t- those three things are the biggest And even when talking with parents, one of the things that I know is very important to ask the parents is, do they have siblings? You know, does this child, you know, differ from other children within your family at that age with siblings and with, you know, cousins and other peers? And how are they interacting? If they're having difficulty interacting within their community because of their language skills, Awesome. Thank you. So that's definitely a question that we can add to the parent interview. What are some other suggestions that you have when it comes to that parent interview of questions that might be good to ask or things that we need to know? So I would ask questions like, does your child seem to be frustrated, you know, with their language abilities? Oh, a big one is, is there a history of language disorders or language difficulties within the family? Because that's a big indicator as well. I would say, does your child have difficulty producing correct phrases? You know, as compared to other children, do they learn new concepts and new vocabulary easily? Those are good questions to ask. And then you can even ask more in-depth questions like, for example, does your child able to spell things in the past tense, you know, using those past tense markers? Is your child able to distinguish between pronouns when they're talking or they have a difficult time doing that? Because these are some things that are not typical. Like we see children, bilingual children, bidialectical children, they're still learning these things. They're still using these things and growing. So if we see, if the parents have concern with those kind of errors, then there may be some concerns. Now, one of the things I also want to say is you must provide examples. So if you ask a parent if the child has difficulty talking about things in the past, Give them an example, because a lot of times, and we take for granted that everybody knows what we're talking about when we're talking about past tense verbs. They don't know what we're talking about. So we want to make sure we remind them what we're talking about and give them an example. Awesome. Thank you. That And that's so true. You know, we think that some of these things that we use all day long is really professional jargon. And I mean, some of it, too, is you know, grammar that we might have learned in elementary school. But if we're dealing with a parent that is maybe not understanding what we're saying, the direct translation into their language isn't quite the same or something like that. So I really like the idea of giving of giving examples of those parts of speech that we're looking for to see how they're doing. You know, another thing I do is when parents tell me that they their child does something or I'll ask them to give me an example. And a lot of times you'll find out that they may not understand exactly what you asked when they give you the example. So, you know, you gracefully say, oh, okay, I understand. And then you provide another example so that they know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. That's also a great way to handle that situation too. Thank you. All right. So we've talked about parent interviews, some different questions to include in parent interview. I know... Some of the things that I've seen too is, you know, I might get like a home survey. I'll look the student up in 
our system online and home surveys is Spanish speaking, but then Spanish speaking can be all sorts of different things, right? Like it could just be grandma speaks Spanish in the home or they have been, the child was born in Mexico, but now is living, you know, here and has been in school for five years. So that might look a little different than like a family who just moved here three weeks ago from Mexico. So that is also something that I found really valuable in finding out during that parent interview time too, is what is their experience with English and or with their home language as well? Yeah, that's an excellent point. And actually, and that is one of the things I actually wanted to mention to you too, is asking about that because, and I, I think I spoke to you earlier about a little boy who it was, I think Vietnamese was on his language survey. And then when talking to mom, oh, and the little boy you know, I'm going through hoops trying to get an interpreter, and he says, I don't speak that talk. <laughs> <laughs> and the mom, you know, and then in my interview with mom, I'm finding out, in fact, that no, they don't speak any Vietnamese to him, barely around him. And so, really, he does not have any, he's so trying to give him any assessment or trying to get a language sample in Vietnamese with, was kind of, you know, a dead end. So, it's good to know that, but it's also good to know that he is, a, you know, he is exposed to English influence or Vietnamese influenced English because then I can listen for certain errors that, that might be common. Awesome. Yeah, Not absolutely. Errors. I shouldn't say that. I should say dialectical variations. <laughs> yeah. And I know that when we had our previous conversation, like our pre-meeting before the podcast episode, you had shared too that while you were listening to mom describe you know, things that he's doing at home, you were picking up on her dialectical differences to know, okay, this is probably how he's going to sound, even though he's mainly speaking and getting English at home. So I thought that was really eye-opening for me too, to think about as I'm doing my parent interviews. That's one of the reasons it's so important to not just do a case history. The case history is definitely where we want to start, but that's one of the reasons why I really like to talk to parents. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. So we've talked about parent interview and you've talked about all the different things that we're looking at when we're observing a child, how they're interacting with peers, how they're interacting in the classroom, what their communicative intents are when they are communicating. So that I feel pretty solid on that. So the next thing you suggested we use and not suggest you're telling us this is very important to use is dynamic assessment. So what is the framework that you use when it comes to dynamic assessment? Okay, so basically, you know, you're going to get a lot of information when you do your language sample and your narrative analysis, right? So, you know, you might, you're getting that information, you're looking at the type of potential errors that you're hearing in those samples, and you're recording them. And then maybe you do a standardized test, even if you use it informally, right? You're just using it to kind of get a baseline. So then you see these common errors throughout, potential errors. And so in a dynamic assessment, what you're doing is you're testing. So you've done your assessment. Then you're teaching. So you're being very intentional about what you're teaching. You're telling the student, the child, what you're teaching and why you're teaching it. You're practicing and rehearsing. You're maybe providing strategies that the child can then use to elicit the desired target behaviors, right? And so then once you teach that and you're looking at how the child is responding, you're looking at their attention, you're looking at their ability to generalize the skill, you're looking at their anxiety level, you're looking at the effort that you have to put in. Does a child pick this up right away or do I have to provide several different cues, you know, visual cues, verbal cues, like how much effort are you putting into getting the child the skill? And then you test again. And so one of the things that you're looking at is what they call modifiability, okay? So when you're looking at high modifiability, that means that there is, may not be a disorder. This may be a, a language, a bilingual, or a bi-dialectical <laughs> issue. 
Whereas when you're looking at low modifiability, the student is really struggling with this skill, learning the skill, using this skill, generalizing it, and or it takes a lot of effort from the examiner. Then we're looking at a potential disorder. You know, there are also other things that you're looking for. I think to answer your question, that's the dynamic assessment part of it. So I would say you have to go with something in mind. You just set it up. So if you're looking at, you know, regular past tense verbs, if you're looking at, you know, irregular plurals, you know, go prepared to teach it and then to assess it again. Great. Thank you for that. I think that is really helpful, especially if you're thinking about doing your narrative analysis and your language sample ahead of that dynamic assessment piece. And then you also shared too, you know, using an standardized assessment informally to kind of pick up, okay, so these are some common errors that we're seeing in all three of these assessment pieces. Okay, let me pick one, teach that. And then see how how much, so what I'm understanding is then I'm seeing how much effort it takes for me, how many levels, how much level of prompting the student needs, and then go ahead and test again and see if they're able to comprehend and keep all of that information that we just taught them. Yeah. Now, a lot of times students will ask me, well, how long is a dynamic assessment last you know what I mean and so again that's going to vary so you know it might be in 30 minute session it might be over the course of a couple of sessions it might be something that you do through RT you know well an RTI like setup where you're working either in the classroom or with the teacher so it can look very different Okay. Jennifer had a great question. She asked, are we looking for the modifiability during the teaching or during the post-test time? We are looking for modifiability, I would say, throughout. So you're kind of taking those notes and, and working throughout. And, you know, because at the very end, if you don't see that much progress, that's another, they didn't learn that. So you're going to take that into account. So I would say it's over the course of the teaching and the post-test. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. I really feel very solid in my understanding of dynamic assessment, especially the way you broke it down. I've heard it presented to me in a couple of different ways, but I really liked how you brought in using what you've already gotten, the information you've already gotten from your assessment so far to come up with that to be your teaching piece. Instead of just bringing something completely novel in and seeing, okay, are they able to do this? Because they might actually be able to do that without any teaching needing to be given to them. So thank you. Absolutely. And I've definitely seen both. So, and you know, something else is that you can use a Likert scale. So you, when you're measuring modifiability, you're going to, you know, you can use a Likert scale of one to three or one to five, whatever you're comfortable with, as long as, you know, you're kind of understanding what your results mean and how you're kind of looking at it. I kind of like one to five. It gives you a little bit more leeway. But one of the things that I want to stress, emphasize, is that when you're looking at child responsiveness, your Likert skill starts at a five for maximum responsiveness. That means a child is really responsive. A one is minimal. Okay, the level of transfer, a five is maximum, a one is minimal. That's their ability to use it in different contexts. But when you're looking at examiner effort, it's it's kind of switched where a five is minimal. Because remember, the less amount of help, the higher the modifiability. And then a one is maximum. So if you kind of look on it on that scale is kind of how I do it. But Elizabeth Pena, Dr. Elizabeth Pena, she actually has a resource on Ashes, these little mini courses. And she kind of uses a chart that's not on a Likert scale, but it's kind of like a table where she measures, places the child's responsiveness in, in it, and she can kind of see it on a table. So really, you, if you look at the, her videos on 
the ASHA website, that can give you a really good idea of how you can measure modifiability as well. Awesome. And then Jennifer just wanted to make sure that she was on the right page here. If we see high modifiability, does that point to more of dialectical difference? Yes. Great. Absolutely, Jennifer. Awesome. Thank you. Did you know that SpeechTherapyPD.com has weekly live and interactive webinars? We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format. Okay, so that's dynamic assessment. And then your third piece that you talked about of something that we need to know when we're working with bilingual students are those knowing the dialectical differences and the linguistic differences of the community that they come from. Where the linguistic inventory is what you had talked about. Do you have any pointers on how to find that information out? So, yes. Asha actually, again, has some great resources. And I think I shared the link with you to that page. And there are so many. Everything from, you know, we often in this region talk a lot about Spanish, but there are so many other languages that, you, you know, that are out there. And so there's Arabic and there's, you know, I mean, there's Cantonese. There's so many different Tagalog languages out there. And so that resource that I shared with you on Asha's inventory is linguistic and some cultural differences as well. So it'll talk about things like proximity and where are these, so proximity and, and some of those differences. Yeah. Variations. Awesome. All right, everyone. I am copying and pasting those links right now. Here's the first one that is those mini courses from Dr. Elizabeth Pena. And then the second one are those differences that Dr. Baez was just speaking about. The practice portal on ASHA has a lot of really great resources when it comes to bilingual and multicultural assessments. So those links are in the chat for you. And then if you are listening later on, you can find those links in the show notes page as well. So www.asha.org slash practice slash multicultural slash dynamic hyphen assessment slash and then asha.org slash practice slash slash, excuse me, multicultural slash phono slash. And that is how you can find those links. Thank you for that. Yeah, something else that you can do is, you know, do your research and your reading. There's a lot of information out there if you're looking up specific information on different cultures. You can find information on different narrative styles, you know, styles, because not every culture tells stories the way, you know, we tend to do in the mainstream kind of, you know, North American, you know, cultures. So their story grammar might be different. Their story structures might be different. So definitely preparing yourself with those kinds of things by just looking it up and looking. There's lots of research out there. Absolutely. And, you know, when you are talking about that, I can't, off the top of my head, I cannot remember the culture of a student that I worked with, but I did look up the students' dialectical differences and phonological differences. And in my research, I found out also, you know, pragmatic differences too, which was super helpful because part of that was you don't give direct eye contact to elders. And so here, this kid, you know, the teacher was certain, oh, he's autistic. No, it's actually rude in his culture to give that that direct eye contact. And there were some other things too, a very formal culture. And so I knew that coming in, okay, he doesn't want small talk. That's weird in their culture. And he was a new, he had recently moved into our area too. So that was a really fun thing to learn and to get to know their culture. You know, you're absolutely right. And, and, that, and that's a big one, that whole eye contact, because it's a sign of respect to look away sometimes when you're listening to an adult. Another thing that's a sign of respect is not saying too much. So, you know, children don't speak as little as possible when speaking with an adult. So, you know, and then on a standardized test, that might look like a deficit 
But that's one of the reasons why you also want to see how they're interacting with peers. How I was talking about that communicative intent. Do you see them being much more talkative and much more expressive with their peers? Because a lot of times it's like a light switch, right? So absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. And bringing up the peer piece too, how important it is to see how they interact with peers, which I think I'm remembering, I mean, this is a student that wasn't necessarily a, well, yeah, she was a bilingual student, not, not a recent move, you know, into California, but there was a lot of influence there. And I remember watching her on the playground and she wasn't talking, but she was interacting with students and she was a student that had a language disorder. Jennifer also has another question. Thank you, Jennifer, for all of your questions. For a family that primarily speaks English, would it be appropriate to talk with the family about the cultural and narrative differences we found in the inventories to see if they apply to their particular family? So I definitely would. You know, you want to be mindful of how you, you know, ask your questions so that you're not kind of stereotyping, but just asking, so what kind of storytelling do you do in your family? <laughs> that will give you a lot of information without not making any assumptions because, you know, we just never know. So um, finding out how they, how they give their narratives and what kind of stories they read is very helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So we've talked about how to find that information for cultural differences and linguistic and phonological differences. So I think we've covered our three things. And within covering our three things, we've shared two resources that you've given us. So that leads us, what is your actionable strategy for us that we can start doing tomorrow to help us be better assessors? So I think one of the things that jumps out to me that you can do tomorrow is changing the way you view dialectical and and linguistic variations. And so instead of talking about what's not present, talking about what is present. So, you know, that changes the whole mindset. When we change our, our language and our vocabulary when we're talking about these kiddos, then we change our mind and we change how we see and how we interpret the results. So instead of saying, you know, omits S at the end of regular plural nouns, using that word omit, that's a deficit way of thinking. So instead saying, you know, marks plurals by the number or by the context of the sentence is a different way of looking at it. So we see that, okay, they are actually using the plurals, they're just marking it differently than generalized um, American English. And so I think that that's something that we can all kind of start right away doing. It takes a little bit of practice, but once you start thinking that way, then you start thinking that way. You know what I mean? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I love that idea of looking at what it is that they're doing and just even in your example that you gave us, I mean, we're really getting to the heart of what a child is doing. And it's going so much deeper into that assessment piece. And that, you know, we're like, just the way that you said that, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, have I paid attention to that? You know, I'm constantly looking, okay, well, they're not doing this. Okay, well, my inventory says that that's okay, that they're not supposed to do that. But I can look and see, well, how are they using plurals? And so I think that that's really, really cool. And something that we can use with all of our students, regardless of if they're a bilingual, multicultural student. So I love that. I really am excited to jump into assessments now and to start practicing. Because like you said, it's going to take some practice to start thinking that way. But how much more of a benefit to our students and to our families to have that information be given to them in that way. Yeah, and you know, I think that it it's really a benefit to the students and just to, you know, our, our culture overall when we start when we start talking about dialectical and linguistic variations as equals, it really is a benefit and more when we talk about strength based, right? It 
embracing that language, the variation, and embracing their cultural differences, it actually does make, even if they are going to qualify, that language intervention so much more meaningful and so much more powerful. And and that you get that buy-in from the students. So you really want to know what are the students' interests. So that's something else that you're doing during that assessment, right? Is finding out what the students' interests are. You never want to leave without finding out what they like to do, what they're good at. And because you're going to actually use those, and you can use those in your narrative analysis, use those in your, you know, in your language sample, and use them in your dynamic assessment. Something that's interesting to this kiddo, you know what I mean? Instead of super boring. And one of the things that I want to mention is I've I've observed now, not only myself for years, but many, many years of students doing assessments, and you can see it in the kid's face when they're doing these narratives. If the narrative is not interested, I'm not going to mention any test off you know, I'm not going to put any any test on blast, but there are certain standardized assessments where they're reading this story and they're going to ask questions about the story at the end of the short story. And the child is just, you know, they're all over their seat. They're just like, oh, their head is down. They're looking around the room. They're doing anything. That, and then when you get to the questions and you're like, you know, so what did so-and-so do? I don't know. You know, I don't, again, I'm not going to. And they don't know. I don't know. Okay, so they got that wrong, but clearly they were not invested in that story. So that's another reason why, you know, understanding what their strengths are and what they like to do is super important because now all of a sudden they're interested and paying attention. Absolutely. Thank you. And then you also know, too, that when you're giving them a narrative for the narrative analysis, it's not necessarily something that they've never seen before. I remember one of my first years working in San Bernardino, we're at the foothills of the mountains and I did, it was winter. So I was doing a snow theme. Half of my students had never seen snow before Absolutely. because we don't have the ability to go up the hill. We don't have cars. We don't have gas money to go up the hill and to enjoy a day of snow. And Mm -hmm. so that was really eye opening to me. And I borrowed a a shave ice machine and we made some snow in the classroom, you know, for them to touch and feel and, and it's not quite the same, but it really was like, why are they not understanding this? Why are they not getting this? Oh, cause we are preschoolers who don't know what snow is. Absolutely. And you know, for the older kiddos, even doing kind of episodic kind of narratives where maybe it's not even about a story or a book that they're retelling. I mean, it could be a movie, but it could also be about how to play a sport, how to play a game, you know, how to, maybe if they're interested in cooking, how to, I don't know, make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or a cake or whatever they do. So it can also be that because you're just looking at, again, the complexity of their sentences, their, their complex sentence use, the number of errors that you're seeing in their T units or for the younger kids, the MLU. So you're looking at the vocabulary that they're using. So you can also get narratives that way. They don't have to be about a story. Awesome. Thank you. I think that's a really good thing for us to remember is, you know, sometimes thinking about those narratives in those episodic narratives, like you said, and not just coming at it from a story grammar point of view, looking for those story grammar elements. Yeah, which we can easily take into account some things that they like to do, and they can be the teacher and teach us how to do them, which is a fun power dynamic for them to have. So thank you for sharing that. All right. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say just recently, there's this game. (coughs) I still am not really sure exactly how this game goes, but there's something about finding an imposter. Do you have any examples of 
maybe when, because this is, it's relatively new to look at bilingual multicultural assessments so in-depthly and to do them really appropriately. I know when I was in grad school, we had a course on bilingual, bilingual biculturalism, but it wasn't as in-depth as it is now, I feel like. So do you have maybe an example of a student that you worked with or a family that you worked with where you started making these shifts and you really saw a great outcome with it? Oh, that's a good question. Let me think. Okay, so I think that there are, depending on what age group you're working <coughs> with, I think that having the parents talk about what they want, what their biggest concern is, and talking to the child about that concern, I've seen make a difference in not only the amount of homework that gets done and gets brought back, so you get that family buy-in, but the level of compliance that you see in the children. Again, it depends on what age. They have to have that that cognitive level to be able to make that, that leap. But when they know that this is something that you're working on for for a reason, I have seen that make a difference. Awesome. Thank you. So when we are asking the parents for their concerns and we're taking that into consideration, is that what you're saying? And yeah, doctor, I had a Dr. Elise uh, Davis McFarland on the podcast a few episodes ago, and she was talking about language acquisition and poverty. And she talked about you know, building that bridge with families by and getting that buy-in by asking them, what what do you want for your son? I want the same thing. Here's how we're going to do it. And I really love that. There's a question about T-units. Could you please expand on T-units? I'm not familiar with this term. Sure, absolutely. So kind of a, a T-unit is basically a main clause with all of its subordinate clauses attached to it. So when you're looking at a T unit, instead it's called a terminable unit, okay? So you're basically looking at if you have an independent clause and then the clauses that are attached to it by like a conjunction, a subordinating conjunction, and it becomes something like that. And so that's what you're looking at instead of looking at MLUs. So after the age of like five, we really stopped counting MLUs. So after the age of five, it's like, okay, well, what are we analyzing? We're analyzing complex sentence use and complexity. And so that's one of the ways that we do that as we count T units. There is resource where you can find out how to look at T units. I'm not sure. I... I know that Restrepo, I think, she or they talk about T-units and identifiers of predominantly Spanish-speaking children with language impairments. That's an article that you can find in ASHA. They talk about T-units and looking at T-units. So other than that, I think you can, I just have resources for my class, but I don't have like a Book? Oh, I don't think I have a book or anything that I can give off the top of my head for my team. And I don't think I do either. I still have my binder from language analysis from grad school. And I use that too. I mean, it's tattered now from flipping through the pages. Yeah, that's exactly where I have that information <laughs> also. So it's not I don't it's not a link or anything that I can share, but it that that information is definitely out there. Yeah. Yeah, I would check. That's a great place to look. That Restrepo article, I just put in those phrases in the chat that you can try and search on the ASHA website. And then, you know, you can try Googling to see what else pops up there. But it is a, it was from language analysis class. And all of the, and looking at complex senses like Dr. Baez said. So thank you for that, for expanding onto units and giving us a little bit more information. Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. 
It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. All right. Well, thank you so much for, so our three, two, one, you gave us that. And then that idea of asking families what it is that they want during that interview process and then using that to really, to really build that bridge to getting that buy-in. I think that that's really huge. And something else that you said that I didn't touch on that I thought was so powerful is you talked about looking at dialectical differences as equal. And I think that that's really huge, especially you talked about that, especially with the strengths-based way of reporting our findings and, you know, analyzing our findings. I think that that's so important, especially when we're sitting around that IEP table, because there is a huge power dynamic that happens in that room. And so that I think is really powerful for families to feel as equals with us and really a part of the team. Absolutely. And that the language that they use in their home and in their community is valid. It really helps a lot of parents when they're talking to me, they feel like almost as if they've done something wrong. And so talking about it in those terms really helps support them and and how they feel. Absolutely. Thank you for that. You know, that they didn't do anything wrong and that do you... Do you talk about code switching at all when you talk to parents when it comes to like academic language that they might use in school versus, you know, dialectical differences? So I'm not sure I would, I've talked with parents as much about that, but definitely the children, the students, we would definitely talk about doing learning two ways to say this. There are two ways we can say this. We can say it this way. Or we can use, you know, school language and say it this way. Both are valid. You see the difference? Get that understanding of the differences. And yes, it's absolutely fine. But it's important to learn this this way, too, because of reading, writing, and comprehension. You know, reading comprehension in school. So I think there is a reason that we need to teach it. But we definitely want to value the whole language and dialect as well at the same time. So would you teach it more as like a pragmatic function, that code switching piece? I would. And it's so funny because I wear a shirt that says too tired to code switch. So, you know, I have my, (laughs) I have my own issues about having to code switch. I think that when you're talking about someone with a language disorder, I think that it is important that we have to be explicit and intentional about what we teach and why we're teaching it. So I do think we're going to need to do that. Okay. Yeah. And I guess that that was really the question that I was curious about is that piece of it, like the pragmatic function when it comes to a student with a language disorder. But I I like your (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. Rebecca has a question that isn't necessarily about bilingual children, but for all children, she would love to know how you'd respond when parents' wants or expectations for their children may not be attainable in the near future, hoping, for example, hoping that their non-speaking child would start speaking in full sentences rather than just using an AEC device or as an example, etc. I would just love other ways of sensitively approaching working with families and expectations? So I think one of the things, and that's a really good question, I think, is it Rebecca? Yes. So I think that one of the things that I like to do is come with my developmental information for parents. So I, and I've done this a lot, actually. And so talking about that, you know, you might not see a specific development What's the word I want to say? An expected development for each stage, especially with children with language disorders. Sometimes their development kind of jumps and they have, you know, peaks and valleys. And But I'm giving a, a parent developmental kind of like expectations and showing them that with, with their own eyeballs can kind of help them set realistic expectations. So, you know, and then just talking about how, you know, that may be something that that can be expected in the future, but these are the steps that we can take to help the child get there. And so using an AAC device can be a stepping stone to expanding expressive language skills. So talking to them about the benefits of 
the intervention program that you're going to implement, it can be helpful to set those expectations. Hopefully that helps. Yeah, I think so. I think that is important to to explain to parents the stepping stones and to explain to parents what it is that we do and what that development looks like. You know, I I know for me, I don't understand maybe physical therapy or and my daughter had to go to physical therapy for a little bit and I was thinking, well, why are we working on this? You know, I trust my physical therapist, but sometimes things don't make sense in terms of that development piece that from an outsider's perspective. Right. And having it written on a paper. So these are the things that you just accumulate in your, you know, as your materials, right? So having those, those materials accessible and having them translated in different languages that are with, that are common within your community can be really helpful because it's not like it's something I said. You know what I mean? It's like, no, this is what the experts say. It's not just my opinion, which, you, you know, you really want to make sure they understand. Like, this this is research-based, and this is what we're seeing, you know? I love that, that idea of it's not just me. This is, you know, a professional-looking handout that is coming from other SLPs. And, and that's a huge piece of education that we can do on the parents' part to really help them empower them to work with their children as well at home on the same things that we're doing in the classroom or. Oh, it's so true. And, you know, I send a lot of parent information home and it's really helpful because the parents start seeing these improvements and they start saying, Oh yeah, I did see his, you know, increase or improvement in pretend play skills. I saw so-and-so picking up a, the phone or a block and acting like it was a phone just the other day, you know? So when you give them that information ahead of time and they start seeing these improvements at home, they're recognizing what they're seeing and it's like a joy for them too. Absolutely. And that's such a great example of like play skills. I know just today I was giving families Laura Mize's handouts of play skills that are needed for that foundation for language And that's a really good example, Rebecca, of like, you know, play skills are not necessarily what a parent thinks when it comes to, well, why isn't my child talking? And so I really like her handout you can find on her website because it has those stepping stones. And then parents can follow along. And she also has some great examples of what it looks like for them to do at home as well. So thank you, Dr. Vise, for also bringing that up. That was a great example. All right. All right, so we're almost wrapping up. If you have any more questions for Dr. Baez, please pop them into the chat or the Q&A box and we can make sure to get them to her. Erin, you asked about the play skill resource. It's from Laura Mize. It's on her website. I'll just pop it into the chat. Play skills inventory might be what it's called. It's so easy to find on her website. Yes. I mean, it's like right there front and center. All right, great. Uh, And so that's a really great one. If you're working with the littles, you know, it's, I've even brought in some of those things for my older students that kind of have some, some of those holes a little bit. All right, please pop your questions into the chat. Okay, Dr. Baez, so why don't we go ahead and recap your three to one, just one last time. So what are three things that we as SLPs need to know about bilingual and multicultural assessment through a strengths-based lens. Okay, so the first one would be to understand and to remember how important the observations, the interviews for the parent, the teacher, and any other support systems, because you know, you can also, I mean, I keep on, you can also talk to other people that work with that student, you know, sometimes when looking at the older kiddos, you know, a good resource is the PE teacher. The PE teacher sees them in really playing and interacting. So I really like talking to the PE teacher. So the interviews, the observations, the language sample and narrative analysis, how extremely important those things are to the assessment process. 
Two, every SLP should know how to conduct a dynamic assessment. And you know something else? Not only do we have the videos, the little mini courses from Dr. Elizabeth Pena, but she also published an article. It's a little tutorial on dynamic assessment, and that can be found in the ASHA, in ASHA as well, and it's an article. So if you have something that you want to read, on it it's what is it called it's called i can give you the exact name of it it is called dynamic assessment of diverse children a type a tutorial that is a great article to use if you need something to read third i think that you should be familiar with common linguistic systems and dialects or which are dialects linguistic systems are dialects and the standardized tests that are appropriate for those in your community and you know there's a resource i actually shared on that oh yes let me i can copy and paste it right now oh that would be great so the university of i want to say virginia yeah okay they have some slp test comparison so it's a nice chart that has a lot of the most common assessments that we use out there that are, you know, that are very common. And it has, you know, a lot of information based on on those different assessments. So that's a good resource to have in your, you know, bag of tricks. Awesome. Jennifer has a great question. Regarding dialectical differences, we find, how does that carry over into the classroom? Should the teacher accept the dialectical differences or do we talk to the parents and child about the grammar and syntax taught in class? Oh, another great question. I think that there should be a time for both. I think that, again, when we're talking about equal, you know, making them equally valid, I think that there should be an opportunity where they get to use both. And the same thing at home. So if you're doing homework and you're obviously you're doing a, you know, a grammar assignment, okay, we're going to use full grammar syntax. But the rest of the time at home, you know, feel free to use your home language or dialect for sure. You know, when you try and create this, you know, demand for parents to have to teach this, you know, formal, you know, main uh, generalized American English all the time, you can create kind of like a, a distance almost in between the, the generations. And so, you know, you definitely want to accept and value again that home language. Absolutely. And then how would you go about talking to a teacher when it comes to that, that dialectical difference as well? So I think that, and I don't know if, if all the SLPs out there are doing this, but I know in-services are a really great way to talk to teachers without placing blame or, or, or being, you know, intrusive. And so talking, having, whether they're annual or biannual in-services where you can, you know, provide general education and then offering your services to go into the classroom and to collaborate with teachers is a really great way to get that in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. I know something that I got a lot when I was in the school system was TH. And, you know, teachers were referring and I would just say, oh, I'm not even going to put this kid on my RTI caseload because we don't do TH. And especially with the two districts that I most recently worked in, there was a heavy Hispanic influence also on my non-Hispanic students. And so I really found like TH was not appropriate for any of them. You know what? I agree. I think that just in this region, period, a lot, uh, that's just common. Right. That's just common across all dialects at this point. You know what I mean? So, again, we want them to be able to read it, but we don't necessarily, yeah, need to teach it as a, you can teach both. Yes, yes. And so that's how I explained it, was if you need help with the student reading and spelling, then we can definitely collaborate together. But if it's just, if they are just not producing it speech-wise, then I would leave it alone. And then I would explain to the teacher, well, I'm pulling them out of your class to work on that one thing. How much better for them to be in your class too? You know, and they're like, oh, oh yeah, that makes sense. So that was, that was one way that I handled that, Jennifer. I don't know if that's exactly where you're coming from with your question about teachers accepting dialectical differences and how to work with that. But that was something that I found a lot the last couple of years was 
my upper grade teachers wanted to send me students with TH errors. And you know, there are books now too, even that teachers can have in their classroom that have these dialectical variations in the story, you know, they're written that way. So that, you know, having those materials accessible to the students in the classroom is another good way to, you know, accept those variations in the room, in the classroom, for sure. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. And then we talked about the two resources. We talked about the inventory of linguistic differences that you can find on ASHA. And then your first resource that you shared was, and you talked about that too, when you were talking about dynamic assessment with Dr. Pena, you can also find her mini videos, her mini courses on ASHA as well. And then what is our last actionable strategy just to wrap up? So our last actionable strategy was changing the way we talk about the variations, these linguistic variations, so that we're not using deficit-directed language, but we're more using what they are doing. So what the child can do, is doing, rather than what they're not doing or omitting, you know, and so we really want to focus on changing our vocabulary and the way that we're reporting these skills. Because they're skills. Absolutely. Code switch and being able to speak two or multiple languages is a huge skill. So we definitely want to embrace that. Absolutely. It's a skill that I am jealous of as a monolingual speaker. So I wish I spoke five languages. That would be amazing. (laughs) Right, right. I know. My husband's always teasing me that he speaks three languages because pidgin is also a recognized language. And so he is fluent in pidgin. And then I show up with his family and I don't know what anybody's saying. You know. Yes, we come from, our husbands come from the same culture. So yes, I was there two years ago, almost 30 years ago. I did not even, I couldn't understand anything. And so, and some of the, even how like everything is a wagon that has wheels. And again, you know what they're talking about from the context of the, of the conversation. So picking up on those things and if they say the kind, you know what I mean? Picking up on those kinds of contextual cues is a skill. Yeah, absolutely. And I really love just talking about looking at things through strengths based. My husband's cousin is really trying to teach his kids pigeon because he's looking at it as such a strength as he is an emergency room doctor and he's able to speak pigeon to his patients and he feels that they open up to him so much better. And he's like, really trying to teach his kids pigeon, but they are in a private school that's not a Hawaiian private school. And so they're, they're not learning pigeon at school. The kids are not speaking pigeon on the playground, but he's, he's really trying to get his kids to speak pigeon because he sees it as a strength that has really served him well. So in his profession, and I think about that too, you know, how many Spanish speaking SLPs are in such need in the area that we live in and really in all of the U S you know, what a skill and what an asset it is to speak multiple languages and, I have also been in that situation where, you know, you're gauging your client and their responsiveness. And so for me, going to maybe code switching and and using, you know, AAE to connect with the parent family has sometimes saved the day. You know what I mean? So you get to connect on a whole nother level that you might not anywhere else. And Carol's asking, what does TH stand for? TH sounds for the phoneme. I didn't know if you guys could hear it. So I said the TH phoneme, because I don't know if you can hear it, if it would translate on the podcast, but the is what I'm talking about. But great question. Thank you for that clarification question. But yes, I totally agree, Dr. Baez. You know, being able to connect with families in a language and a dialect that they understand and they feel comfortable with. Like, I really can see how that would win the day and make somebody feel comfortable, you know, and and kind of eliminate some of that power dynamics that can happen when people enter into that space. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us and your positivity and your passion for this subject. I really appreciated the time that we've spent today and then our previous conversation as well. And I really hope that 
all of you have enjoyed today's conversation and are able to start looking at your students and your children through that strength-based lens. I'm really excited to start practicing that starting tomorrow. So thank you, Dr. Baez. Thank you, everyone else who have joined us here today. And we will see you back next week with Dr. Angelica Gunn to talk about all things executive function. All right, everyone. Thank you and take care. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.